Hello, and welcome to the last episode of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson, for 2020. And it's been quite a year, hasn't it? Thank you to everyone who's taken the time and trouble to listen. Your support has been hugely appreciated. As regular listeners will know, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. I guess this episode, which we're recording over the internet incidentally, is a little different for reasons that will rapidly become apparent. Today, I'm delighted to tell you that my guest is the multi-award winning director, Steve Barron. We've managed to steal an hour of the poor man's Sunday, the last Sunday before Christmas, and he's in the family home. So be warned, this podcast does contain some screaming grandchildren. Steve made his name in the 80s with a slew of iconic videos featuring artists such as Michael Jackson, Dire Straits, Aha, Madonna, Paul McCartney, David Bowie and The Jam, to name just a few. Subsequently, he segged into films, directing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Coneheads and Mike Bassett, England Manager and television, with recent credits including The Durrells. However, in 2016, he established Margent Farm on a 53-acre site in the Cambridgeshire countryside where he grows hemp, a rather magical but misunderstood crop which has an array of possible uses and the potential to change all our lives for the better. Not only that, but he used the crop as a key material to build his own farmhouse. Steve, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Okay, not at all. Yeah. Hi. You're just back from Paris, I understand. You've been filming there. We've been editing there. We've been filming in Bucharest. Ah, okay. Are you allowed to tell us on what? Uh, yeah, it's um, Around the World in 80 Days, the Jules Verne novel. as uh, an eight-part yeah. series with uh, David Tennant as Phileas Fogg. Oh, wow. Very good. Film and TV has been hugely hit by the virus. This week, there were reports of Tom Cruise getting extremely angry on set when he saw members of the crew breaking social distancing restrictions. As a director, has it been incredibly difficult making what you're doing at the moment? It's been very different, yeah. I can see why he lost it. <laughs> it has been very strange because we've got, you know, these marshals that are all around the set. Any one day we've got between 200 and 400 crew. So, you know, the chance of somebody going home, local crew, catching it is pretty high. But we got away with it just. I mean, there was days when I'd turn up on set and they said, look, one of the stunt guys got it. So we've had to isolate the whole stunt crew. So your horse and cart that had to barrel through this, this street we're trying to find somebody from the farm to do it, you know. So lots of that sort of thing. Wearing a mask for 10, 11 hours a day is not great. It's really difficult because it's such a communication business. As a director, you're trying to communicate with people and uh, that just stifles it, smothers some of it, definitely. Mm. I mean, I'm keen to talk a little bit about your background, but the, the raison d'etre behind this podcast is hemp. You have Margent Farm in Cambridgeshire where you're growing the crop. How did this all come about, Steve? Four or five years ago, I was... Just really starting to look for something to, to try and make a bit more of a difference and uh, to do something that was like filmmaking, creative in some way, but uh, actually could contribute more to rescuing our planet. You know, we'd all seen four or five years ago, I was looking at all the plastic things, even before David Attenborough did his amazing show. It just felt like there were problems everywhere, problems in the oceans, problems on land, the soil, problems in the air with the carbon. It just was... A, a, tricky thing sorry can you hear that screaming ninja in the background <laughs> well we just have you on a sunday i think it's perfectly reasonable you have your grandchildren around where are you by the way at the moment i'm at the farm yeah. maybe for the listeners can you describe the farm for us yeah it's 53 acres three big fields um it has uh fertile soil in certain parts and soil that needs repair in other parts it's off down a track in the middle of nowhere no houses around really so which is great there was no 
house on the farm and that was why I went looking for a farm that I could try and build a house out of the crop. So that was the brief and that's what we did. Why hemp in particular, Steve? What drew you to that particular crop? A friend of mine, Fonda, who is from Canada and she'd heard a lot about CBD and the, the benefits of hemp generally and I didn't know anything about it. We didn't really know anything about it so we just researched it. The more we researched it, the more we realised it had been so ostracized and demonized mm. and uh, just been taken out of the possibilities of so many different industries. So we thought that was a, a great one to do. So we started off by showing that the building materials can be uh, great for a house. Should we talk about that? Because there is a, mis- a common misconception around the plant. It'd be good to put that to bed, I guess, first and foremost. I mean, hemp is not marijuana. If you decide to smoke it, it will not have any effect, right? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. You'd have to smoke the whole field and you'd get, you'd get very sick before you got high. <laughs> it's got a tiny percentage of THC, which is a hallucinogenic substance within it. The rest of it is all many different strains of cannabis. It's been divided underneath the term cannabis, which is there's a, maybe 150 more strains of it. Uh, under that banner, there's marijuana, which uh, will get you high, and uh, hemp, which is more for the industrial materials or for the hemp oil. So those two come under it, and there's far more hemp than there is marijuana available in different strains. So, yeah, that's why it was demonized, because it's the same plant, basically, or it's a different strain of the same plant. Yeah, yeah. That seems to be a difference that appears to be too nuanced for successive governments, though. So you have to apply to the Home Office to get a license to grow the plant. Yeah, you have to uh, apply to the section that deals with firearms and get a license from them, which is absolutely crazy because they know nothing about farming. And mm. uh, it's such a great benefit for farmers as a crop. So we're trying to get it moved to DEFRA so that it could be policed by DEFRA. You know, fine, if they want to do it, you still get a license, but get it from a farming guild that then you will understand what you're trying to do. It's just very archaic to still classify it as a, as a drug. To classify marijuana as a class, whatever it is, drug they've still got it in, is already not a great idea. And then to lump hemp which has none of the properties that are the problem, is an even more ridiculous idea. Yeah, because it's actually hemp cultivation was banned in 1971 under the Misuse of Drugs Act. That was overturned in 93, and obviously you still have to apply to the Home Office to get a licence. Can we talk about the benefits of hemp and what, well, what you can do with the plant, first and foremost? The benefits are there's many different types of it. So if you go for a fibre crop, which means that one that has lots of fibre, it would be the one that they would use it for rope in the old days. It's tall, it's long, it's got strong fibres around the side of it, bast fibres around the side of the, around the outside of the stem. Those are, and they've been used for clothing, for all kinds of things for thousands of years. So our first year we grew a very tall one, Futura and Fedora, we, used, we did two of them. They came out really well. And inside the stem of the plant is another good material, which is also a fibre as such, but it's a pulp fibre. It's the woody core of the plant. And those two things are quite different. You've got the the fibre on the outside, which is long, thin, which can be processed. This all has to be processed, obviously, into the uh, long, thin fibres. Or you've got the um, woody core, which is much more of a mulch-type substance. So you can use them for two different things. About 30 years ago, People started reusing them because they used to use them 10,000 years ago. But the pulp, the woody core, the shive was used for a thing called hempcrete, which is an alternative to concrete. It's done by the French initially. They started using them a bit like, you know, where you're building mud brick homes or bits of plant in with homes in Yemen or whatever. But in this case, it was a 
all the woody core that then would be mixed with a, a lime and a bit of water. It would then solidify it, crystallize into a very hard substance. So it's, you know, really, you know, that would last for hundreds of years as a, as a substance. So it is also because you have lots of fibers, you have good gaps. It's great for insulation. So you can use it for a wall. And I'm in it right now. I'm just looking at the wall here, which is uh, all the, uh, the hemp. It's almost like a recording studio. It's so quiet and so good we got an amazing results from you get tested when we built this new house and and uh, we got tested by the various factions who do that uh, and the, the results were amazing with the with the lack of draft and so the eco value of it is fantastic and that's been around for quite a while there's probably 10,000 homes i would say around the world that have been built out of hemp that way what we then wanted to do was try something new and i at the same time had met with um, tim sweatman who's a uh, a natural materials expert and had used hemp and flax and things many times. And he was introduced to me by Cambridge University, who I'd approached to talk about this project. He uh, told me about how you can cut up the fibers, the first one, not the shive, cut up the fibers and put them into a non-woven mat. So they're, you're not weaving them crisscross, you're multi-directional. So it's like a felt. Then what he had done was he'd added a farm waste, a bio waste made up of oat hulls and corn cob and sugar bagasse, uh, all kinds of waste from farms that then made a resin that then he would soak in the, you'd soak the uh, felt in and thermal compress it at about 100, 160 degrees. And uh, pretty quickly you'd get from a soft felt material you'd get this super hard material for whatever you want to use it for. And the car industry rediscovered it like 15 years ago and thought, wow. That's- yes, it's being used in car interiors, right? Yeah, it's used in the panels for doors and, and mm. trunks and things. So you don't really see it, but it's a very strong material and uh, it's cheap. So they've been using it. So what we what I decided to do was get a tool made to do a corrugated panel and try it for the outside of the house. Try it as a rain screen for the outside of the house because we already had the wall that was the inside of the plant, the hempcrete. Now we just were going to clad it with this corrugated material, which is the outside of the plant, the fibre. You're kind of putting the plant back together in a way. You've got a fibre mm. on the outside and shive on the inside. So we did it. And it not, not, that had not been done before, and it's been up there for two years. It's been great. It's, uh, we've had a tremendous amount of interest in it. We don't know yet whether we could commercialise it, I'm working with a manufacturer for composites in Wiltshire who is trying to, but you need all kinds of certification and regulation. And also people need, you know, to know how long it's going to last, how waterproof it is, all those questions that have to be answered. So fundamentally the crop from your field built, created the house that you're now sat in is, is what we're saying. Yeah. Grow your own home. We called it. Grow your own home. But it was designed by uh, practice architecture, Paloma Gormley, the practice best known for Frank's Cafe in Peckham, created on the top of a multi-storey car park in 2009. How did that relationship with Paloma begin, Steve? That was a recommendation from, I mean, lots of people in the sort of hemp world, and it's not very big, the hemp world. I was asking around, and Joe McGann, who has a company called Hempen, who have done a, a lot of uh, products for balms and things like that. And he said, you should try Paloma, because I said, I need to find somebody cool to be an architect for the house and build it. I was in two minds whether to do it prefab and completely go to a prefab company with a new material and have them do it. 
or start again. And and when I met with Paloma, she's brilliant. And she had done a, a hemp house before with, she'd used hempcrete before, never done the, obviously the, the cladding that was new. We had a, a barn, which was a cattle barn on the farm, no, house, no houses and a, a brick barn that was for storage. And so she incorporated that footprint. We got permission, obviously, incorporated that footprint into the house and the the barn, which we're now living in. The crop you're growing, that crop can only be used to create hempcrete or can you use other bits of the plant for other things? How does that work? We can change the strain of hemp we use under our license. We can use pretty much any strain as long as it's not marijuana. They do have to be EU approved, but there are about 30 of them. It would be great to have many more and maybe when Let's see what happens with Brexit. But, you know, maybe the one advantage, as far as I can see out of it, could be that we don't have to follow these antiquated regulations, if anybody's smart Mm. enough in the government to update them in the right way. Yeah, yeah. You know, she gave me a few drawings and uh, and they were really, really great. And we, we put it together. So, yes, we don't have to grow the same strain. So like last year, for instance, and the year before, we grew a different strain, which is smaller, which you don't, you're not really growing it for the fiber because it's about a third of the size. You're growing it because it has these big bushes on it, which are the hemp seed. And so you take the seed off the top and you crush it and you have hemp oil, which is delicious and great. Mm. Uh, it's in waitrose and that sort of thing. And you can use it for balms and oils or you could use it on your salad. You can also turn it into flour, I think I'm right in saying, and, and bake bread with it, right? Yes, I haven't tried it, but yeah, I'd, I'd heard that, yeah. We grew that the last two years and, and uh, got quite a lot of uh, a, a better economic value out of it because selling hempcrete isn't really a business unless you do it on a vast scale. But you can't harvest the plant's flower, I'm right in saying, for CBD in this country. What we have to do is when we've gone in either uh, and, and got our fibre or got our seeds, we have to then destroy the leaves and the flowers of the plant because that's where you can extract CBD from them. Mm. We're in this crazy situation where we are, as a farm, allowed to import the CBD and put it into our products, our balms or whatever, but we have to destroy our own. (laughs) This complete madness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's partly because the pharmaceuticals have kind of gone in on on the action and the small farmers have been left behind again. CBD is a cannabinoid, but it's increasingly popular as a substance to help relieve stress, right? Yeah. Yeah, it does a whole bunch of different things. It's got more and more popular it, very quickly, even though the, the regulations were floundering behind it. It very quickly grew to a, a you know $50 million business in Europe for people wanting to, to buy it, even though nobody could say exactly what tests and studies have revealed what it done. They just trusted it. They gave it to their mums. Mums felt better on it. It's been a great word of mouth success story. And would this fundamentally change your business, the farm, if you're allowed to harvest this, Steve? Financially, it would. I mean, not so much now. Two years ago, it was £100,000 worth we threw away. That's the profit. It's very hard in farming to make a real profit out of smallish 50-acre farms. And that would have been a real a real profit with a great tax charge on it, which would have been you know great for the you know for the government to get from farmers. It's just been something that it's crazy. We don't we don't know what to do. We've tried lobbying and uh, it's fallen on deaf ears. There's lots of other things going on. Can we talk a little bit about, as a farmer, the crop itself and the benefits it brings to the soil? Because it sounds extraordinary. You can decontaminate the earth with it. You don't need to use pesticides. It's an incredibly versatile sounding crop. Ecologically, it's great because it grows so tall. And if you're going for fibre, it grows so tall and so dense that per acre, 
what you're taking up on your land and what you're reaping off the biomass is fantastic. Mm. It's great for that. It will help. The roots are really strong and, and long and go deep. So it will help with compaction of soil, which is a problem we have. You know, we don't, we don't, we obviously haven't watered it. I mean, we did have a drought one year that meant that it couldn't grow because we didn't have the water to put it on. But we don't, you know, that was like a freak one in 20 chance, really. But uh, it will use about a quarter of the amount of water that cotton uses, which is why Levi's have gone back into it. They used to use it back in 150 years ago. Well, that's right. The first pair of jeans that Levi's ever made were from hemp, right? Yeah, they were hemp because it's canvas. The word canvas is from the Greek for cannabis. All the canvas wagons that went west that we see in all the cowboy films, they would take people out from the East Coast, having sailed from all over the world, take them out to the West Coast. And then they wouldn't have a lot of use for them, uh, or a lot of them would be stripped down. And so uh, they started stripping down the canvas that's made of hemp and turning it into clothing. It was also used for paper. The American Declaration of Independence is allegedly written on hemp paper, which is kind of intriguing. Dollar bills as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Steve, I'm intrigued. You were working in films and television and becoming a farmer, I guess, is a paradigm shift, really. Did you have a moment of clarity where you decided this is what I need to do? Yeah, I did. I, I felt that, um, I'm a, you know, I'm happy doing television and we did the series of Durrells and it was hugely successful. And I just felt that I had, in that moment, I had more to do for my grandchildren who are just in the other room, actually. And, uh, mm. you know, what could I leave behind that has more meaning and more impact towards showing or helping people discover ways to make it all better? When we found hemp, it just became, yeah, that's the way to do it. And I bought this plot of land and it was in a terrible state with weeds and all that stuff. But we didn't know if the hemp was going to grow. We didn't know if the new cladding was going to work around the house. We didn't know. There were so many unknowns but it was like a big adventure, a big research adventure that uh, I didn't know was going to work. But I just, you go on like in, in movie business as well, you go on your hunches, you go uh, what you sort of know a little bit about, but your hunch of, of how it should stage or how it should look or how it should feel. And similarly in this, it was just some hunches, a lot of which worked incredibly and some of which didn't. What didn't work? I'm intrigued. Uh, the hemp when we had the drought didn't work, for instance. Different levels of compression. It was discovery. It was like, is this going to work on the outside of the house? Is this going to clad on the outside of the house? Will it, or does it need to be a different uh, temperature in the mix or whatever? What else did we try? We tried trays as well for the hospitality business and actually shifted quite a lot of them. And, and then, of course, hospitality business went out a year ago. So trays made of hemp that you carried drinks and things on. Yeah, we, do, we did 100 for like four hotels in London. How do you do that? Is it just hemp or is it with a bioresin or how does it, how do you work that? Same as the, uh, the corrugation. So it's the, it's the felt matting, uh, multi-directional non-woven mat. And then you put the uh, resin in, the bio-waste resin. So it's pretty similar. We do have one version where we have a woven cover on it. So it looks kind of cool. You've got the material look. So not just the fiber look, you've got that material look as well. So we're still, you know, we're just still in a few shops and things. Just the uh, the world of the hospitality world has gone. Yeah. Well, here's hoping for next year. Can we talk a bit about your background, Steve? Your mum was a filmmaker. Your father was an actor. Were you always going to go into the movies? Actually, my father was a sound man. Oh, sound man. Yeah, he did do a bit of acting in Dublin back in the day, about theatre, bits of theatre. But he 
was primarily he was a, he was a sound man. He did Ready Steady Go. And okay. did you ever see that movie Blow Up, the sixties movie? Yeah, David Hemmings. Yes, he did that. He did Rocky Horror Picture Show. So that was his thing, sound man. Um, and my mum was a brilliant continuity script supervisor to begin with, and then she got uh, elevated to directing by. Uh, working with people like Warren Beatty and Barbara Streisand who were directing themselves and they used her as the bounce board for what they were doing, you know, in front of the camera. And uh, she got to make three film movies really on their recommendations and things really came from. So I grew up around the business a bit, the film business, but um, I kind of came through a slightly different way. I was went into the camera department Early on, when I was 15, just a T-boy, left school very early, got very good at making a cup of tea, which actually got me some big shows. <laughs> I got onto Superman 1 because of my tea and uh, Bridge Too Far um, and The Duelist. The Duelist. Yeah, yeah. So, so you worked with people like Ridley Scott and Richard Donner from a very young age. I mean, did you learn stuff from them? You know, I didn't, I kicked myself later because I thought, why wasn't I just, and, and Richard Attenborough as well, why wasn't I, watching what they were doing and i didn't really know what they did i didn't really i didn't go to film school so i didn't really know what the director did outside of you know handing him his cup of tea and you know seeing him talk to the actors and talk to the uh, camera crew about angles and things i didn't pay enough attention i I did watch ridley scott kind of paint images with you know he'd take a a whole bags of flour and lay them along a muddy path in france and make make the, the path lighter so that it had a you know a, this look to it and i was fascinated by that but not you know i didn't look enough at it and then very quickly because i was i think when i was about 20 i was just still doing superman i got friendly with some people in london who you know same age as me who were in the music business and uh, wanted to make films of their bands like videos whatever they were called at the time promotional films so i kind of winged it I knew a bit about the cameras, didn't know about the directing, and winged it and just kind of slowly fell into directing these promotional films. The Jam was the first one and Adam and the Ants. And, uh, he did Strange Town. Was it Strange Town was your first one? Yeah, yeah, that was, the, that was the first one. And in fact, I didn't, that was, I rang up, you know, a few of the crew on Superman. I said, look, they've given, they've given us me two grand to make Polydor, give me two grand to make a film for this band. And I don't really know, can you come and do it? So I got the operator and I got the uh, the DP and a few of the crew around to make it. Uh, but I didn't have, I didn't, I, I, made, I wrote out the call sheet. I knew a, lot, a bunch of things to do and I knew how, what lenses to use. There wasn't a director. I, I just didn't mm. know what to do with the director. I put myself as producer and, and, and then stood on the set and started directing. And, you know, because there wasn't one. So I just kind of, <laughs> it was like, it was really chance. And, uh, and so later on, I just went down as a director and, uh, you know, learnt, learnt the craft through a bunch of videos, really. Proper trailblazing stuff, wasn't it? Because there was presumably no handbook for how to direct a, a music video at that time. No. And there weren't many of you doing it either, I don't suppose. No, there wasn't. And uh, it felt like, I mean, I think in the 60s with the Beatles and things, there was quite a lot of them done. But uh, then by the 80s, it was like, no, you, you need something for Holland to show the Nolans singing. And so, you know, someone would shoot the Nolans and give them a piece of film and Holland and Germany would play it. But it wouldn't play on top of the pops or anything like that. They would like not goes near it and somehow it kind of grew from that where people were saying well wait a minute can it be more creative mm. we'll give you a bit more money 
And uh, it grew by the late 70s into that. Part of it was, I feel, a lot of it was Duran Duran and Flock of Seagulls and those bands that just were suddenly very visual. And they were going to sell more records if you got them on film because of how they looked, not just how good the video was. And so it became more important through Punk and New Wave to get pictures for them, get to get film to, to put them across. Yeah, yeah. And you went on to make a, I mean, a slew of genuinely properly iconic videos, Money for Nothing by Dire Straits, Take On Me by Aha, and of course, Billie Jean with Michael Jackson. I mean, you must get asked this all the time, I guess, but what was it like working with Michael? Uh, yeah, it was, it was a long time ago. So he was really sweet. We were roughly the same age, I seem to remember. And it was like, um, and uh, but it was just as he, just before the album came out, Thriller. So he wasn't, you know, this was a new variant from since off the wall for him it was like a more grown-up album and no one quite knew they you know you could hear the song I, when i got billy jean i was like oh, this is an amazing song really unusual they weren't even sure it would go in the charts because it was you know it didn't sound like other songs it didn't have all the, the usual stuff in it he was quite soft-spoken and you know a bit shy but we had a couple of good chats before i came to la then i landed in la and we had a a good talk in uh, before we shot it. And uh, he was very trusting, you know, he just let me do what I wanted to do, basically. And, you know, later on, obviously, once Billy Jean and Beat It exploded, he was much more in control of his videos through, you know, Thriller and everything. It was much more what he wanted to do, whereas at this stage... He wasn't sure what uh, what videos were going to do. That's interesting. And the thing that used to fascinate me as a child probably says quite a bit about me, I suspect. When you watched Michael's feet as he was dancing in Billie Jean, it really used to bother me that he'd be touching a paving stone. It didn't always light up. Yeah. What was going on there? What was going on is that it was, I initially said to Michael, look, look we're going to, you know, your dance is, is going to be whatever, you know, you want it to be. I haven't seen it. And he hadn't really worked out what it was yet. But his manager said he was practicing in front of the mirror and he'd got some ideas. So I, I asked for the art department to make a street of paving stones that were touch sensitive. But when he stood on them, they lit up so that it would react straight away. And of course, you know, the budget was not very much. I mean, it was, it was big for me, but it was uh, $50,000 compared with $2 million for Thriller. It was tiny. Even Beat It was $300,000. We just had that you know, a, a very restricted budget, really, for what we were trying to do. And uh, so, that, you know, on the day or the day before, the production designer came to me and said, we can't, we've tried it, we can't, we can't afford it, we're going to have to have someone with the switches put them on. So there was an electrician who was, you know, reading the paper and had a bacon sandwich who uh, had to do the switches. He's not a musician or anything because there was very unionized as well who was allowed to touch the switches. So um, he uh, stood around and tried to keep up with Michael Jackson, who's so fast. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was difficult. And, you know, it was, uh, I, know, I know Steve Martin did a skit on Saturday Night Live where he kept standing on the stone waiting for it to light up, <laughs> and uh, which, was, uh, which was really funny. But we, yeah, we just, uh, we, we didn't do it. And he, what was amazing about Michael was, he was thinking all the time. And so, you know, he saw this situation that there was this, you know, this would light up and that was working and that kind of didn't and everything. And he turned some of his choreography into this trepidation of like whether he go was going to land or not. And uh, I thought that was brilliant because it, it just mm. made it 
you know, make more sense in a way. You've talked about your camera steamed up while he was dancing. Yeah, totally. I, I used to operate quite a lot because I came from the camera department side. Uh, I found it more comfortable that I could really look through the lens and uh, know exactly what we're getting and how we're getting it. So I was doing a bit of, I said I, w- I was going to track back with him handheld along the paving stones. And I said, do you want to rehearse it a few times? Normally we'd rehearse it. And he said, no, no, I, I, let's just do it. And so we did it. And uh, I walked back and the music started and, and it boomed all around the studio. And the chorus came in and he started moving forward with his dance. And the first time we'd seen it, anyone had seen it at the time. It was like a whole new Michael Jackson. And it was stunning. And it, through the lens, yeah, my eyepiece steamed up. I got so hot watching this, thinking what on earth, how I'm, you know, being, you know, a meter away from somebody who was going to become even more of an iconic genius. It was so obvious right there. But mm. this was mm. extraordinary. And this was almost not human. It was, you know, this cat-like uh, movement and uh, comfortable with the song and the and what works with the song. And uh, so... That was a stunning moment where I probably didn't have another moment like that through another 200 videos. Yeah, yeah. Culturally as well, it was incredibly important because it got played on MTV and, and Jackson was the first black artist to be played on that station, which until that point had been the kind of province of white rock bands. Were you aware of that when you were making it, I wonder? Uh, yeah, we, we were only because uh, the head of CBS at the time, who we were making it for, said, we're going to get this on MTV. This is going to be on MTV. It's going to be you know it's, it's a pop song it's going to go on mtv it's not going to be you know separated into a black channel or anything and he was pretty sure and then after we delivered the video and two weeks later i got a call from him saying mtv has said they don't this isn't their sort of music and uh he freaked out with them and mm. called them out obviously uh they eventually let it go on i can't remember it was three or four weeks after we delivered it to them but then they put it on and of course then michael jackson became their biggest artist of all time and became mtv he was mtv he you know that's the irony of it all that uh you know they they were very naive about it was it difficult watching his descent from your point of view steve yeah yeah it was obviously very sad i mean what he was doing to his looks and everything was he was such a great looking kid when I worked with him. Kid, he was like 21, 22, I think. But uh, he was great looking, but he was obviously unhappy. He was obviously, there was stuff that he didn't like about his past, it seems, from, you know, who knows the, the full truth. But it was very sad to see uh, that descent. Do you think the music video as a tool in the age of YouTube is as important as it used to be? Do they contain as much art and craft? I see videos sometimes, not very often, because it's very hard to find what you have to go wanting to look to, to get them but you see videos that are you know really cool that uh at the time if they'd have made them at the time that i was making videos they would have won video of the year but uh, they don't get seen except by the fans really they they don't get noticed so it's kind of sad so we i mean with our heart we take on me we just passed the billion view mark i saw the band in cape town when we we're shooting down there and um, we celebrated with the band because it's uh, a rare landmark to get through. Hopefully, they do get seen, but I don't. I don't know where that is. I mean, yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not watched an MTV um, video award show. I don't know what are the top videos and what are what else is around. Because what the technique you use for Aha Rotoscope, right? Yeah, 
which which was an old an old technique that you kind of revived. Yeah, it'd been around since very early animation because it was an easy way of doing animation. You'd shoot the uh, characters live, live action, and then you'd mm. draw around them on a, a cell, a piece of cell that gave you the animation when you shot it again, frame by frame. So it was a bit of a process, but it meant that the animation's not coming out of your head. It's coming out of something that's physical, that was that was already shot, already done. Mm. And subsequently you went on to have, I mean, huge success in the movies as well, directing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in 1990, Coneheads with Dan Aykroyd, Mike Bassett, England manager in 2001. It's an eclectic list. Is there a thread that runs through your work? You've talked in the past about having an aversion to uh, to repetition. Yeah, I didn't. I, I don't think I ever did a sequel. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the films that I did did see. Uh, we had sequels to them, maybe five of them, and uh, I didn't ever want to. Uh, I, I just felt, yeah, you've done it. Once you've unlocked it, that's the whole thing about directing. I think you're unlocking these ideas and a certain story and a narrative, and it's something that you don't really. I don't think anyway you don't you don't necessarily want to uh, to do again. Are there parallels Steve with farming hemp and doing what you you do in your other half of your life? Yeah, there are parallels, yeah. I, I think uh especially if you haven't been a farmer before and I and it was all new to me. The parallels were get yourself surrounded by a crew and in this case it was surrounded by part-time farmers and consultants for hemp, consultant for organic farming, a consultant for the materials. That was all very much like movies. You surround yourself with people that know more than you, that are better than you. That's the way you do it. So those parallels are um, are all there. Uh, the research side of it and then the hunch side of it, both of those are very similar. And then, you know, hit and miss. Sometimes you get a great crop and sometimes you get a cool <laughs> film, <laughs> you know. How do you split your time now between the directing and the and the farming? Um, well, I've just been doing quite a, Obviously, lockdown, I was on the farm all the time, which is fantastic. Mm. We had a good crop. And uh, the rest of it is uh, like I've just been away four months in Bucharest and, and Paris. That is, um, you know, obviously, I, I you know, I've got to leave the farm to other people to deal with, which is what I do. But uh, it's probably half and a half if you if I don't do a film every year, if I do a film or a TV every year and a half sort of thing, then, which is I'd prefer. Do you feel there's a moment where you have to make a film or is it a question of what comes to you? It is my, uh, you know, it's what I get paid to do. And, you know, this farming is not a lucrative business, that's for sure, especially like the way we did it, which was R&D. We were doing a tremendous amount of R&D for the hemp materials. And, uh, you know, that was paid for by what I do in TV. So I need both. And I'm quite happy with both. It's nice. I, you know, you miss it. After a while, you miss television that uh, you'd like to do. And then when I'm in, t- in television, I'm missing the farming. So, <laughs> Can we talk a, bit, a little bit about plans for the future? Because I've taken up loads of your time, so um, I ought to let you go and get back to the grandkids shortly. Can we talk about the future of hemp in general first? I mean, what is the potential of the material and how should we be using it? I mean, the potential is very high. And, you know, we should be growing more of it and using it for materials. I think the building industry, it's very hard to break through into uh, into construction and, and that world because they, they use things that are made chemically, uh, like concrete or whatever, that come out the same every time. You don't, you know, whereas natural fibers have their own character because they're real. And uh, um, so I think it's hard to break through, but 
we've just got to keep pushing it. I think it's definitely growing. And I think it could be an answer to a lot of our problems ecologically. And uh, we just need to, to press on it and lead by example, I suppose. That's what we did with the house. We built the house. People love it. Architects Journal now, you know, and all, all the magazines that, that suddenly wanted to have the pictures of it in their house. And we've had tons of architects call and say, you know, what's this stuff? What is it? So we've opened a lot of people's eyes to it. And that's by example, it probably wouldn't have happened. I don't think if we'd have just talked about it. So I was at a conference uh, recently run by the barn in Aberdeenshire entitled Hemp Futures. What seemed to me by the end of this was that there are farmers who want to grow the crop and there are designers and architects who are keen to create things from it. But the middle bit, the, the processing of the plant seems to be an issue. Is that is that something you agree with? Yeah, totally. The processing, like manufacturing in the UK generally, we haven't got the processing in this country. There's a place mm. in Leicester that can do a bit. There's two places in Yorkshire that can do a bit, but they're not set up on the scale that they have in France, for instance, or Poland or Mexico. Or They've got big factories that process hemp, and processing of hemp is a proper process, and you, financially you need scale. And uh, technically, you need the right people moving into it. We've got to build some facilities, and that's what they're doing in, in America. They're in Tennessee, for instance. They've got money from the government to build a processor that feeds about 20 farms, you know, because it's close mm. enough. You've not, not got long haul on trucks. If you know that all these farms are going to do it, then you know, the processing will come. It's it's the problem at the moment. It's definitely the problem. What about the plans for the farm, Steve? Where do you see the farm going? I mean, is the crop you're building, is that going to be aimed primarily at the construction industry? Is that where you see the future for the stuff you grow? I think it's too complicated a world to crack, really. What we do is we get it to a stage and then we collaborate. So we're collaborating right. with the place in Wiltshire, CSENS, who are giving us, you know, more expertise. They've got a scientist, they've got all these people, they can take the product into something that means that it can work on a bigger scale. Plans for the farm are really to have a brand, which is what we've got now. We've got a brand, which is Margin Farm, which is the name of the farm. And I think this is good for farmers generally, that if you can make a make a brand and, and sell some products under that brand and have that brand trusted, that's what we want is a is a brand that gets known and trusted to uh, deliver, to do things for the right reasons. We've just gone into, uh, there's a shop in London called Goodhood that are selling our products and there's about three or four other places that are selling pieces and trays and things. So the plan is to grow that, to make that all happen, make it all sustainable and uh accessible is the notion that one day your grandkids will one day take the farm on yeah well they're here they're living here when lockdown happened they were in kenya and so they moved from kenya with my daughter and her fella and the two grandkids and they uh they were coming back because they were suddenly realized that they were going to be stuck out there having been there for five years so i just moved them into the farm it was perfect it was like absolute mm. perfect timing because it's lovely for them to have a place and they and they love it and these you know they've all been really helpful with the farm so they already are kind of heavily involved in it very good very good steve that's a lovely place to leave it um thank you so much for your time on a sunday hugely appreciate it okay not at all thanks very much sorry i couldn't get the technical stuff yeah that's fine that's fine and, and merry christmas and all that and to discover more about Steve and Margent Farm, go to margentfarm.com. There are images from the interviews, as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. And I have a website, 
You can find all the podcasts I've done, sign up to my newsletter, and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And if you feel so inclined, you can go to my Patreon page and make a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. So that's it. Another year over. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. I hope the show has provided some succour in what has been the most difficult of years. Have as merry a Christmas as is feasibly possible. And let's all hope for a happier, healthier new year. We'll be back in 2021, and until then, please stay safe and well.